I'm Lauren, and I'm joined by my friend Charlotte. Hello. And this is Demythifying, the podcast where two best friends talk mythology, go off on tangents, and hope to bring a little bit more forgotten magic to the world. This episode is a big crossover as well, as we'll include so many different mythologies, and it's very exciting. And we're also joined by a friend of the podcast, Ellen, who I'm so excited to meet virtually finally. Hey, hey. Hello. So hi, ladies. I need to say how much of this episode I wrote and researched while listening to Taylor Swift. She was basically my soundtrack to this episode. And Ellen, would you like to quickly introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah. Hey, hey. So uh, I'm Eileen. I'm uh, currently a student of cultural heritage and archaeology over here in Sweden. And uh, I run an Instagram under the name of Moose Lady, uh, where I get to like express my obsession with mythology and with um, megalithic structures of different sorts, like megalithic monuments, like runestones and passage graves and so on. And uh, I also use my social media as a let out for my creative side in form of illustrating different historical artifacts, people, and uh, sometimes mythological creatures of different sorts. Welcome. I have one of your prints as well, and it's absolutely stunning. I'm so honored. Thank you so much. When I get my proper recording space, I'm going to frame it, put it up, and there will be pictures because it's beautiful. Thank you. That's cool. I've got two Swedish cousins, so they'll be listening to this with a lot of interest. <laughs> wow. They won't be judging how I pronounce things then. Very cool. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> uh, I think their family's, the, their side of the family is from Gothenburg. So, yeah. Mm, that's perfect. That's, uh, that's the right dialect then. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. A story we haven't talked about in full before is that of Arachne. We've mentioned aspects of it, but given uh, not given the full rundown. And it's not a particularly long story either. Arachne's story dates back to Ovid, where he describes her story in Metamorphosis. Arachne was the daughter of Idmon, Idmon and started weaving at a young age. She grew up to be a great weaver, but refused to acknowledge that her talent came from the gods, in particular, Athena, the goddess of craft. In fact, Arachne would boast that her talent was greater than that of the goddess. Word of this obviously got back to Athena, who decided to show up one day disguised as an old woman and see for herself what was going on. Upon hearing Arachne yet again boast, Athena, still in disguise, warned Arachne to ask for forgiveness from Athena and not to boast. When Arachne refused and baited Athena to come and challenge her to a weave-off, Athena revealed herself. Whether or not Arachne meant what she said, the two ended up having a contest to determine the best weaver in town. Athena's tapestry depicted contests between mortals and gods, which all ended in the gods punishing the mortals who had stated they were equal to gods, as well as her contest with Poseidon over Athens. The stories Athena included are Rodope and Hymus, the Pygmy Mother, Antigone and Cinerus. 
Arachne's tapestry also depicted gods and mortals, especially in ways that the gods, especially Zeus, had misled, abused, deceived or seduced mortals. Arachne's weaving was indeed beautiful, but it was an insult to the gods. The two tapestries showed contradicting attitudes towards the gods. Athena's depicted the gods and their absolute power, where Arachne's showed the gods transforming themselves to trick and rape mortals. Athena became enraged when seeing this and ripping Arachne's work and hitting her on the head three times. Ashamed, Arachne ran outside and hanged herself. Athena saw this and then said, Live on then, and yet hang. Condemned one, but lest you were careless in the future, this same condition is declared in punishment against your descendants to the last generation. After saying this, she sprinkled her with the juice of Hecate's herb, and immediately at the touch of this dark poison, Arachne's hair fell out. With it went her nose and ears, her head shrank to the smallest size, and her whole body became tiny. Her slender fingers stuck to her sides as legs. The rest is all belly, from which she still spins a thread, and as a spider, weaves her ancient web. Arachne and her descendants weave for eternity. And I've included in our notes a picture here of Minerva and Arachne by René Antoine Huassi, which this one I found is of Athena hitting Arachne over the head or Minerva hitting Arachne over the head and I liked this one more than all the others where they were weaving (laughs) yeah there's more action going on in this one for sure yeah definitely and you can see Arachne being like no don't hit me yeah but is it really um I mean for her is it really a punishment to become even more equipped for being better at weaving I mean with eight arms she would become a much better faster yeah yeah i didn't look at it that way so did she do her a favor maybe she did her a favor then maybe she did it's a it's an interesting form of punishment especially when she was trying to just kill herself and get it over yeah. and done with it's very interesting spiders were quite important in celtic mythology as well and there was an old irish belief that you should never kill a spider uh, I can say that that is still very much alive in Sweden today. Is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. If um, if you have a spider in your house, that means that your house is not moldy. Um, it, this is not facts, by the way. This is just <laughs> folklore here. So yeah, so uh, your house is um, very like it's a good house if you have a spider in it. So you shouldn't kill them. And then if you kill them, you mess up the weather for everyone else. Because then it will rain for at least eight days. Oh, wow. So would mm-hmm. you recommend move it, placing them outside? Or is it just a you leave them where they are and then they, they find their own way out? Uh, no, like I think the most, like the best way is to leave them where they're at. Usually they're down the basement either way. And I am way too freaked out to come close to them. So I just <laughs> let them skip over the floor and I pretend that they're not there. But um, at least that you don't, <laughs> as long as you don't kill it, I guess it's it's fine then. Okay. I would never want to kill a spider. I think they they kill mm-hmm. things in your house that you don't want, like flies. So I think they're quite Agreed. they're quite nice things. I don't know. Tell my boyfriend that <laughs> he's scared of spiders. Yeah. Is he scared of? Them? I actually. Oh wow, he looks far too manly <laughs> to be scared of spiders. 
I'm so all Dom's dirty little <laughs> secrets are coming out now. <laughs> it's not that much of a secret. He can openly admit <laughs> that he does not like spiders. <laughs> there are worse things to be scared of, I think, than just spiders. And they were also spiders were also important to the Navajo, and they have a mythical figure called Spider Woman or Spider Grandmother. And she was said to first weave the universe. When she began, she didn't know what the patterns she was compelled to weave actually meant. But her curiosity was the driving force and she wove a universe map and the patterns of the night sky. And they also had a superstition about not killing spiders. That seems quite a worldwide thing to be kind to spiders. Yeah, they seem to be in, in quite a few different cultures, don't they? And I found this picture on girlmuseum.org. I couldn't see I couldn't see a credit for it, but there were loads. If you typed in spider grandmother, there were actually loads and loads, obviously the inspiration for a lot of artwork and a lot of quite dark artwork because she's said to have obviously created the universe. And I thought this one was quite spooky. Should have included this in the Halloween episode. Yeah, it's really, really pretty though. And you can see in her hand, she's kind of almost like a cat's cradle of the web. Mm. I love that picture. That's so pretty. Apparently, Aphrodite once challenged Athena to a weaving contest as well. But weaving wasn't Aphrodite's thing. And she beat her quite convincingly. Not very surprisingly. No. would like to tell you both the story of Philomela and Procne. And this is a really, really horrible story, but I definitely think that it is an important one to tell. I saw a version of it in a production at the Globe Theatre, which used peaches to represent blood. And that will make sense when we get to that part of the story. There are a couple of kings called Pandion, and according to the translation I read, he is Pandion I. He was a king of Athens. War broke out with Thebes, with King Labdacus over border disputes. And from my understanding, just to put the story in some kind of time place, in the like, grander scheme of things, he was a grandson of Cadmus, as in Cadmus and Harmonia, who we have mentioned. The war isn't going especially well for Pandion, so he enlists the help of Terius, who is a son of Ares. So he's going to be a nice guy. With the help of Terius, the war ends up going the way of the Athenians, and as a thank you, Pandion offered his daughter Procne, and she was extremely thrilled, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's far too common in stories that women are just offered up for marriage. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a band-aid over the wound kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Uh, for this story, I looked at two sources. There was Apollodorus, and his story was just over a page in a book. And Ovid, who essentially tells the same story, so he flashes, but he fleshes it out with more details. And I will flip between the two. Ovid stresses how neither Juno nor the Graces attended the wedding, but how the Furies did. And there was, there were omens like a sinister screech owl. I googled screech owl as an omen, and this is what I found. The screech owl is always a sign of heavy news, 
neither singing nor crying out clearly, but uttering a certain heavy groan of doleful mourning. And therefore, if it is to be seen to fly abroad in any place, it foretells some fearful misfortune. So you can tell already where the story is going to go. But in happier news, they did have a child. It is probably not pronounced that way. Five years after they married, Procne was so desperate to see her sister again, so she broached the subject with her husband. He agreed, and he went to their dad to try and negotiate a visit. Now, Ovid emphasises now how much of a babe Philomela was. Obviously. (laughs) Obviously she was. They always are. Apollodorus had already said that Terius had been attracted to her before, but because we're not sure how young she was, not that that stops most of them, but she was rich in beauty, young and pure, and obviously her purity would have been an attraction for him. Terius, being a red-blooded Thracian male, knew he had to have her. And that's a nice little detail that Ovid adds, that Thracian men were lustful and prone to sexual indulgences. So probably this is a stereotype that the Romans believed. Ovid also suggested that it was a combination of trying to bribe Philomela's servants and Terius heavily emphasising just how desperately Procne wanted to see her sister again. And they finally convinced Pandion to let her go. But on the condition, she would be looked after and returned home soon. And Terius promised. But do we think that he kept his promise? Mm. I will put a big hmm on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Definite hmm. Ovid then tells a story where poor Philomela is dragged off into a stone hut in the forest pretty much as soon as they dock and Terius rapes her. Afterwards, she verbally assaults Terius and he ties her hands up. Rather than cutting her throat like she's screaming at him to do, he cuts out her tongue. And this is where the Globe production used the peaches to represent her tongue being cut out because it was a bit tamer than than blood. Ovid said then that he raped her again after having her tongue cut out and that's absolutely horrendous and poor, poor Philomela. All of it is horrid. It's so horrible. So, so horrible. He then returns home to Procne and basically makes up a story along the lines of um, Soz, but your sister died. Procne then distraught, wears black and erects an empty tomb for Philomela. A year goes by and Philomela is still under guard in the hut, but she has been busy weaving a tapestry exactly about what happened to her. She manages to get it to one of her sister's mistresses, who presumably would have gone to visit her to take food or something. I don't know. Ovid doesn't mention But as soon as Procne sees the tapestry, she's too soon to even speak. But the cogs in her head do start turning to create a plot of revenge. So Philomela weaves the tapestry to say what happened and Procne weaves the threads of revenge. At some point in the future, of which Ovid doesn't specify a time frame, a celebration happened where the women of Thebes would gather in the dark and worship Bacchus. So this was the perfect time for Procne to sneak to the stone hut in her celebration outfits, dress up her sister in costume and sneak her back to the house. So phase one of the plan is now complete. Poor, poor Philomela was so full of shame over what had happened, but Procne comforted her and swore they would have revenge on Terius. 
Now, it just so happened that it is happened to walk into the room and it gave Procne the inspiration she needed. And her poor son, because he literally throws his arms around his mum and tells her he loves her. And she has a little bit of an internal battle, but ultimately she decides that they will kill him. Procne then invents a family custom where just the master and mistress of the house would dine together. And so she feeds Terius dinner. Terius then calls out for his son and Procne tells him he is already with you inside. And confused, he calls for his son again. And Philomela then jumps out, covered in blood, holding the son's severed head. Terius weeps for his dead son and calls for the Furies. And he then goes to attack the sisters with a sword. And all three of them turn into birds. Between the sisters, it was a nightingale and a swallow. And Terius into a hoopo, possibly that's pronounced, with a sword-like beak. Apollodorus says the sisters pray to the gods and their prayers are answered. And he specifies that Procne is the nightingale while Philomela is the swallow. Now, obviously, the story is horrible. But like the story of Arachne, it's a story that gives voice to the women of sexual assault. Arachne wasn't herself, but she chose to weave stories in the tapestry where she depicted the gods doing this to women. And then Philomela, who had her voice taken away, used the one way she could still communicate, which was by weaving. From research I've done, I believe that women who could write were generally the exception. And it was more the Spartan women that could, and also obviously Sappho. Sappho? But she wasn't Athenian either. So because Philomela was Athenian, she probably wouldn't have been able to write. The myth of Philomela inspired so many writers and painters from the Renaissance onwards, Mm. but even Homer evoked the story. And the first example that instantly sprang to my mind was Lavinia in Titus Andronicus, where not only was her tongue cut out, but her hands were also cut off. So it's that one violent step further to silence the voice of women. And I found another parallel between Titus Andronicus and the story of Procne and Philomela, where a parent eats the body of their children without knowing it as part of a revenge plot. But in the play, however, it's Lavinia's dad who serves up the bodies to their dad, and he's no relation to Lavinia's dad. So there's some kind of similarity, but it's not a direct mirror. I did uh, think of the similarities when I was reading this to Titus Andronicus, which I saw at the Globe a few years ago and it was it was very gory it was very powerful when Lavinia opens her mouth and blood pours out unable to speak and she's shaking um and a good few people passed out in the audience it was it was definitely hard hitting for sure it was I I read all the uh, headlines that people were passing out and I went I've got to see that play (laughs) I did (laughs) it was it was very gory I want to go and see it when it comes back on stage yeah wow (laughs) That's why I think the Globe chose to do it with uh, the performance that I saw chose to do it with Peaches to make it a lot tamer. Yes. But it was still effective. And they had like the bits of the whole bits of Peach like kind of dropping out of their mouth. It was definitely fake blood, a lot of fake blood. And and she there's a bit where I think it's her uncle. I can't remember this story exactly, but um, he shakes her and he says, who did this to you? Who did? And she just opens her mouth and all this blood pours out. And and there were yeah people in the audience just fainted they just fainted wow (laughs) yeah i can imagine because i know this is totally off topic now but i remember when you know the saw movies those uh yeah Mm -hmm. are they horror charlotte 
Charlotte does not like horror movies. No, I don't do either. I just know of it. <laughs> I saw the first one and I'm, I'm not interested in the others. Mm-hmm, me too. <laughs> me too. I saw the first one under peer pressure during a party. Uh, so I saw the first one. And I know that um, during the, the showing of these movies at cinemas that people have um, passed out. If, wow. So... I, I can only imagine, yeah, I can only imagine seeing a theater where there's like actual, even if it's fake blood, yeah. um, that's pretty gory. It's very, it's cool, but it's very gory. It, it was very gory. <laughs> it was very, and also I went to a, a late night, I think it was a midnight showing. So it was dark, it was night, and then you've got this intense moment, like, who did this to you? And she opens her mouth and... And obviously her her hands are already chopped off and she opens her mouth and it's like, it all just pours out. Oof. It was incredible. Yeah. Did the, did the audience know at that moment that her tongue had been cut out? I don't remember, but I, th- I think so. Okay. Well, even if they didn't know her, her tongue had been cut out, you it was at the point where she had no hands. And they, they were all bleeding. and Oh, my. So I'm just wondering. I mean, I'm spoiling this for you because you want to go see this, but... I know I know what happens. I know what happens. <laughs> I know what happens in it. I'm not unfamiliar to the story. Um... On, the, on the subject of Saw, I have seen the first one. I refuse to see the others. But I, did, I didn't find it that scary because I overheard a friend talking about it and I knew what happened at the end. So I, I found it less scary. <laughs> That's good. I have totally blocked it out. I just know that I did not like what was going on there. I I can't take blood of any sort. I'm such a... Yeah, I, I can't deal with that stuff at all. So don't go and see <laughs> I, Titus Andronicus then. <laughs> oh, but now I kind of want to, though. Now you have hyped it up for me here. <laughs> I'm fine with blood and I can watch anything gory. I do not like medical stuff. So if you oh. show me or describe medical things to me. Even a friend of mine has a vitamin D deficiency and she described her bones as hurting and I felt sick mm. at just hearing that. I cannot deal with with medical stuff at all. In pictures or videos inside stomachs and even if it's not gross, it's but knowing what it is, no, I can't mm. I can't deal. But but blood and gore in horror films is fine. I'm the complete opposite. <laughs> I can't deal with anything and I, I blame my mother for this a little bit because <laughs> my my mother <laughs> had been working within the medical field for all of my life and um, we can just sit gathered around or when I was growing up we could sit gathered around a dinner and then all of my all of a sudden my mom starts bringing up these things that she did during her day of work like oh we, we we were cutting off a bone today. I really don't like the like so, the saw sound, the sounds that the saws make when they're cutting into. It. <laughs> oh my god! So she is very desensitized, and us other yeah, like, of course, all of us siblings sitting there around the dinner table wanting to eat. <laughs> so I I have become very I don't know if it's trauma or what it is, but <laughs> no horror movies, no medical stuff. Just I have my books and that's good (laughs) oh my god no i can't imagine that during dinner that's too much it is (laughs) wow sorry i took it off topic now no 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 it's good it's good (laughs) oh we 
you know, we we go off topic a yeah. lot, so it's it's fine. <laughs> I would like to talk about some weaving by women as that is done as an act of love or an act of heroism as one of just the many ways that weaving is sort of represented in myths. So we need to talk about Ariadne and Penelope as well. Ariadne helped Theseus navigate through the labyrinth by giving him a ball of thread. I've read things online that have said she gave him the sword as well that he used to kill the Minotaur, which, if that's true, how unprepared can you actually be? <laughs> Let me go and deal with something that's eating people and not have a weapon. <laughs> Sources do agree that she gave him the thread. We will cover Theseus' story soon because he is one of the main Greek heroes and probably worth a multi-part of episodes, but we've briefly mentioned who he is. And can we maybe argue, though, that Ariadne is also a hero in her own way? I mean, the person who built the labyrinth, Daedalus, he couldn't really have made his way to the centre either because it was that sophisticated and complex. So do we really think that Theseus would have made his way out alive? I have no doubt he could have killed the Minotaur because we know that he's done heroic stuff and he's killed other nasty things. But would he have starved to death before he made his way out? I mean, I think yes. There's also Penelope, like we mentioned in the episode about Athena with Neil and Dustin. She spent three years, three years weaving and unweaving a funeral shroud for Odysseus' dad, Laertes. It's a surprising and impressive tactic all at the same time that she would be able to put off a multitude of suitors by saying she needs to finish the shroud. Her main argument is the reaction of other women towards her if Laertes dies without a funeral shroud. So I'm assuming she kind of takes on the role of his daughter by marrying his son. Laertes was quite a figure in mythology. He was an Argonaut. He was part of the hunt for the Caledonian boar as well. So it's a shame that we never have a description of the shroud, as I imagine it would have been quite a sight to behold. Does she? I can't remember if she ever actually finishes it, though. Does she actually finish it? Because doesn't he come home? No. No, I I think they No, I think they look through yeah. her bluff there. Like finally they figure out that oh, you aren't really making Some, this, aren't I, or you? someone tells them that she's picking and unpicking it. So it's not quite enough of it is mm. finished. And obviously he was an Argonaut and Odysseus returned in the nick of time because after three years, the suitors finally discovered Penelope's pan, which seems a bit ridiculous that it took them that long to find out. Again, though, we can view Penelope as a hero as she used her wiles and power for good. Absolutely. And I'm going to go back to what I said in the episode with Neil and Dustin and say that she did it like a military strategy. It's sheer tactical brilliance. She's defending and protecting her family and she did it for the love of her husband and her child. And there is no way that Telemachus would have been allowed to live by whichever suitor had ended up marrying her if they had been able. Philomela, as we know, was turned into a nightingale. And there's another nightingale transformation myth that Penelope references to Odysseus when he was disguised as a beggar before making his dramatic entrance home. And this symbolizes her fear for Telemachus and obviously Penelope didn't know it was him but yeah you can take the fear for her son from her telling him this 
this story. I want to talk about the fates now. The number three seems to be really important in religion across the spectrum. There's the fate or passe, which are Roman, who I'm about to talk about. The Norns who are Norse, the Celtic matres, I believe that's how it was pronounced. You have the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost in Christianity. And there are three deities in Hinduism that have the creation, preservation and destruction roles. And even in literature, there's the three witches in Macbeth to name some examples. Jung considers it an archetype of religion. And I want to talk about the fates or the morai, the parquet. Clotho slash Nonna was the one who spun the thread of life from her distaff onto her spindle. Lachesis or Decima was the one who measured the thread of life with her rod. And Atropos or Morta, who was the one who cut the thread of life. Morta sounds a lot like mortality. Yes, it comes from the root mortis, meaning death in Latin. I read that they would appear three nights after a child's birth to determine the course of its life. There's a story about Meliga where, as a baby, his mum heard them say he would live as long as particular log burned in the family hearth, and she took it out and doused it in water, and he ended up living a longer life, eventually becoming an Argonaut. Because of course he was. He was in charge of the Caledonian boar hunt. There was truth, however, in that what the fate said, as his mum ended up putting the log back onto the fire when he was an adult. And when the long log burned out, he did end up dying. His sister ended up being Heracles' second wife. So we'll revisit her later. And rather than it being a clever trick to cheat death, maybe it happened exactly as it was supposed to. In the Gigantomachy, they kill two of the giants. And there's a real difference in the way they are perceived by both the Roman and the Greeks. The Greeks view them as being busy women, while the Romans see them as being in the way of people's hopes and dreams, with the Greeks being generally more accepting of them and the Romans lamenting them. We also want to talk about weaving as being an important thing in daily life for women. So going back to Homer... If we assume that he is one person, or actually even if he isn't, he mentions women weaving in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. Andromache weaves love charms, and Helen is weaving a tapestry in the Iliad about the battles. And in the Odyssey, as well as Penelope, Circe and Calypso were both weaving, just to name a few examples. There generally seems to be a contrast between an industrious woman who is ideal wifey material (laughs) in Penelope and between Circe, who is seen weaving, but she's a witch and she has a more duplicitous kind of cunning. We can also look at a piece of carpet material in Aeschylus' play Agamemnon, where a piece of cloth that is normally an expensive bridal cloth is used as a carpet and then as a murder weapon to help restrain Agamemnon while he was stabbed. Uh, Spoiler, spoiler. (laughs) Agamemnon was wary of walking on the red material at the beginning of the play, so you can kind of appreciate the symbolism there. So again, it's that link between a woman's mental cunning and their cunning in weaving or use of tapestry. And you can see this across all of the women that we mentioned today. 
And it really looks like weaving was something that transcended rank. In terms of ancient Greece, there's more evidence of weaving among Athenian women, which fits with the picture that we've seen of Athens, where women weren't really involved in things like politics, philosophy and the arts. In Sparta, where there's less evidence of weaving women, women were actually allowed to own their own property, which is ridiculous how shocking that is. But back then it was it was quite shocking. It's depicted on lots of pottery as well and I will find some examples to stick on our Instagram. It was an important function in the house because the family needed clothes and textiles would have been used in the house as well. And looking at pottery, it looks quite social with women sometimes weaving in groups. And I remember from watching the miniseries Jesus of Nazareth, groups of lower status and poor women weaving and spinning together in groups. And that was set during the Roman occupation of Judea. And I like to think it's where they met, not only to weave and spin, but to get their gossip on. (laughs) And where weaving might have actually been something that transcended rank, the actual spinning of the wool wasn't. So you remember Solon, who we were introduced to by Neil. In his reforms, he also introduced state brothels, which took tax. And this was all in the name of democracy. And there were, so you had high class courtesans and women who were independent sex workers. And then you had these state brothels. And a lot of the women who worked in them were poor or slaves. Now, in terms of the money they actually earned from sex, they were allowed to keep some. The brothel took most and some was given to the state in tax. But because, God forbid, the women had leisure time when they weren't working, they would spin wool. And this was very labour intensive and unpleasant work. And this was how they would make money for the brothel when they weren't working. And they didn't keep any of the money for this. We will come back to sex workers in ancient Greece and Rome in the future, 100%. 100%. Especially now that we are looking forward to a visit from Elodie Harper, who wrote The Wolf Den, which is a fiction book about a woman in a Roman brothel. She's very exciting. That's so cool. I met her at a signing recently and I asked, I said to her, will you come on? And uh, she said she would be delighted. So I'm very excited about that. Oh, is that the signing you got on the books I saw on Instagram? Yeah. So cool. I'm so happy for you guys. Wow. Just, I shot my shot. And so yeah. we're having her and Jennifer oh. Saint, who wrote Adriadne, yeah. is supposed to be coming on as well. So we have that to look forward to in a few months when their new books are coming out. So so good yeah i know it we're 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 doing good this year because this this episode is coming out in january so yeah 2020 is going to be uh it's gonna be good things for us weaving was also a big part of life for viking women and evidence has been found in york where dyes were used to dye cloth so they would have actually been a more colorful bunch than you probably would imagine from film and tv and the amount of layers and different colors were more of a symbol of rank as well as richer people could afford more so you can tell i was paying attention when i went to the jorvik center in york you've given me an impossible person to pronounce (laughs) wait till you get to some of the ones later on where we are going to ask for ellen's help yeah Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I looked at them. I mean, oi. Lithuanian. <laughs> <laughs> You're putting a lot of fish in there. You'll do a better job than us. 
I will try my best, but I know that um, I have Lithuanian uh, people in my feed on Instagram, so I hope I won't do them any. I won't offend anyone. We would do worse, believe me. Okay, we will do our best. Okay. Let me give best. this a go. Right, so there's a Welsh goddess called Ariane Rod. She is a primal figure of feminine power considered to be a moon goddess as and as the goddess of reincarnation she rules fertility and childbirth. And looking up Ariane Rod, I found quite a few kind of sketches that they're, they're like sketched kind of paintings where she is towering over what looks like a village and yeah I, I thought it looked quite nice and it was very colorful so I thought I'd include this it's by Judith Shaw and apparently she has a sexual preference for mermen so we should keep her away from Poseidon <laughs> absolutely she is known among many other things as the goddess of the silver wheel and therefore is associated with spinning and weaving. And she is said to use her wheel to magically spin the tapestry of life. I would like to mention Neith as well. She's Egyptian and in some cosmologies, she is a creator of the world and the mother of the sun. I don't want to go into too much detail right now because there are directly contrasting stories about her and her family which we will eventually get into when we talk about Egyptian mythology eventually. Mm-hmm. But there are creation myths suggest that suggested she created the world by weaving. And there are other myths that link her to funerary rites and suggested that she wove mummy wrappings. And I just thought that it was interesting. But I know that you're not a fan of the nope. mummy, Charlotte. Nope. I can't do dead things. Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> She also protected the red crown of Lower Egypt before the merging of the two crowns. Another interesting thing about weaving in Egypt was that, according to Herodotus, it was men that did the weaving. So it's almost like, I'm going to use the quotation mark, bunny ears gesture here, to say that it's the civilised Greeks are being compared as polar opposites to the barbarians on the edge of the world. It's interesting that weaving in Africa seemed different to other places. And it is what is interesting is that three of these different cultures have a story of someone weaving life, weaving the world. We see it with the spider grandmother. She's weaving the tapestry of the stars and, and everything. And then Aaron Rod and Neith. I find that quite interesting. Three completely different countries, completely different cultures. We're going to mention some more sort of later that briefly where there's a similar thing, but it's it's there's something that's just across yeah. the world and it's pretty much all women as well. Uh, we also have the Tukalor. I really hope I haven't butchered that people who are from, who were from Senegal and Gambia. Now they apparently learned weaving from a mythical male ancestor called Junlel Jibali. He invented the loom. But it was his mum that taught him about growing and preparing the cotton. So this was a nice little family collaboration. But as far as I know from research I've done, farming and growing was mostly done by the women in African culture. And this makes sense, I think, because men were more the hunters and women the grower-gatherers. And I think this is something that's even continued today. I've seen statistics about women, about most things that you buy that have come from Africa were grown by women. 
In Deborah Francis White's book, The Guilty Feminist, she talks about how in ancient times, women were more involved in farming and gathering. But as equipment requiring more strength was introduced, it became more of a man's job. And that that does kind of make sense. If you need upper body strength to do something, you know, men carry their strength in their upper body, whereas women, it's more their lower body. Yeah, I think this was the idea, especially as well in cultures where they used to maybe move around and women were gatherers mm. and then they settled and cultivated the land. They used those sort of heavy things. So I think in Africa, it, it sort of makes sense more because they were advances in things like irrigation and they learned more about how to make the most of the land that they had. Can we quickly talk about the cowherd and the weaver girl from Chinese folklore? As you know, I love constellation myths and one of the main characters of the myth Xenu is also the goddess of the star Vega, which is from the constellation Lyra, and it's one of the 48 named by Ptolemy. Xenu was the seventh daughter of the Jade Emperor. So quick side note about him, because we've so far covered zero of Chinese mythology. He is one of the representations of the first god. You can also find him in mythology in South Vietnam and by another name in Korean mythology too. So he's a huge deal. He was head of the Pantheon, but not responsible for creation. Zinu was usually represented as weaving colourful clouds in heaven, and her name translated literally means weaver girl. Every day, Zinu would descend on earth in order to bathe with the help of a magical robe, and she was beautiful. Of course she was a beautiful maiden. Pretty much every story is about a beautiful woman. (laughs) Of course. So one day when she was bathing, a cowherd saw her called Niu Lang. He fell instantly in love with her, as all of these stories tend to happen. And to stop her returning to heaven, he stole her magic robe. This is gross and I hate this. And it also shows that men's attitudes towards just having a woman is also across multiple mythologies. A hundred percent, because when she emerged from the water, he grabbed her and carried her off to his home, which is a very, very Zeus-like thing to do. It's very Zeus-like behaviour. So mortal men have the capacity to be just as awful as the divine ones. Even now still. She did fall in love with Niao Lang and she married him. So when her father found out, he was unable to do anything. She grew homesick and missed her family. And one day she discovered a box containing her magical robe that her husband had hidden. She used it to return to heaven. And her mum, who is a celestial queen mother, weaves the silver river to keep them apart. The silver river is what we know as the Milky Way. I read a very slightly alternative version where she was so in love with him that she didn't want to return. And it was the Queen Mother who summoned her home against her will. And then she wove the Silver River to keep them apart. Out of heartbreak, she became the Star Vega and he became the Star Altair, which is in the constellation Aquila, also one of Ptolemy's 48. And in Greek slash Roman mythology, this is the eagle who carried Zeus or Jupiter's thunderbolts. Eventually, the Queen Mother relented, and on the seventh day of the seventh month of the Milky Way dims, the Milky Way dims, and there is a bridge for the lovers to cross and be reunited. This is a day celebrated for young lovers and is celebrated under different names in China, Japan, Vietnam, and Korea. And this really is romantic. If it rains on that day, people say it is Zinu's crying tears of happiness because she's been reunited with her husband. That's sweet. That I do like. (laughs) That is quite, it is quite a romantic ending. Um, 
And found on the maryspinster.com by Bonza Sheila, there's a picture of Zinu weaving and presumably her husband in the background. It's very colourful. That would make sense. And very... It's, it is, and she looks very pretty. She looks very pretty. It's a very traditional Chinese picture. It suits the story so well as well. I love these types of illustrations. They're so pretty. They're so colourful and vibrant. Yes. I will talk a little bit now about weaving in Norse mythology and also a little bit about history since I am an archaeology and cultural heritage student and history enthusiast over here. So, <laughs> so as mentioned earlier, the Norse are considered as the fate-weaving creatures of Norse mythology. The numbers of three fate-weaving women is very similar to the Greek and Roman myths. So the Norns are not goddesses. They're older creatures called Deser, which were close to the gods of Asgard, but they were respected as goddesses. And they actually had their own sacrificial celebration called Disablut. So uh, the Disablut would be celebrated during the cold Swedish winters. And there are records of these taking place in old Uppsala uh, during the Scandinavian Iron Age. So this was to secure good crops for the upcoming spring. So these three sisters from Norse mythology are named Urd, and that means what was, Verdandi, uh, what is, and Skuld, what will be. And their collective name, the Norns, means simply the fates, basically. So very suiting. The sisters are said to live underneath a root of the world tree Yggdrasil by a magical spring. And one of their main tasks is actually to keep the Yggdrasil green and alive by smearing the magical spring water, uh, sometimes said to be mud, on its root. And they spin the fates of everything that is alive with their weaves of life. And just as the Roman and Greek goddesses of fate, they are the ones cutting these threads to decide the individual lifespan of everything. They also decide which threads of fate are braided together with each other. So, and in Norse mythology, everyone is mortal. Uh, even the gods can, and they will die, and they do not rule over their own fate. That's quite different to my understanding of Greek. Mm where they kind of work with Zeus almost? Yes. Yes. No, in uh, the Norns are very, they are very respected amongst the gods because they are these old uh, mystical creatures. And uh, during the, when the, in Norse mythology, when the world breaks apart, when everything ends, when time ends and the big battle comes uh, called Ragnarök, then, I mean, even Odin will die, it's said. So the the gods are not that different from humans and they will die. They are all mortal. The only uh, reason why they do not die is because they eat magical apples. That's really interesting. But they are very mortal. We will come back to this some other day. (laughs) Since I am an archaeology student and history enthusiast at heart, I also want to talk briefly about an 
interesting theory regarding women weaving during the Scandinavian Iron Age, a love poem found in runes on a weaving knife, <laughs> and how weaving could be associated with the magical women in Norse societies uh, called völvor or valor. So let's start with the magic. And I will try not to become too swept away in the details. We love details. That is something I will and can do. So a vulva was a female shaman who would, through trance and songs, be in touch with the spirit world. The Poetic Edda is the collection of tales which is believed to date back as early as the 800s, where one of the most well-known poems, Völuspa, comes from. And that is the basis of most Norse mythological tales, this poem. And uh, the word Völuspa means basically the predictions of the vulva. And the word vulva within itself actually has been linked to mean bearer of the magical state. And uh, this is where it gets really interesting. Because the weapon of the vulva was a stave made out of iron with a very particular look to it. Uh, it is a rounded iron stave um, with something that is similar to a birdcage on top. And I want everyone to Google this right now because it's very interesting. We will have to put pictures of um, of some of the staves up on the Instagram as well so people can see. And uh, these staves have been found in around 40 different women graves around the North Europe, in uh, around Scandinavia and so on. It is very interesting. So these are not like mythological. This very much ties into reality. So... Now let's dig into the interesting theory regarding women weaving during the Iron Age because it all ties back to the vulvor or the valor because it builds upon the points I brought up regarding the vulvas. So the aristocrats in the Scandinavian Iron Age are thought to have praised Odin and his warrior values while their wives are believed to have followed Freya and her magical values. It is theorized that the women actually partook in the battles of their husbands, but kind of in a different fashion than on the battlefield. There has been found numerous weaving equipment in the long-gone halls of these noblemen and women. And now a new theory is that the women partook in the battles while weaving. So that it basically that it was a magical wave of manipulating the outcome of the battle. <laughs> so there, there is actually an old Norse songs about this very thing. In, for example, the spear song, which is told in Njal's saga, that song, uh, in that song, it is Valkyrias weaving the outcome of what has been theorized as the battle of, sorry, this is an Irish word now. <laughs> so bear with me, Klontarf. This uh, originates to Ireland. This battle in uh, oh, how do I say this in English? Uh, 1014? 1014. The year 1014. So now, when we have gotten that out of the way, back to the vulvas and their staves. If we look at examples of old weaving equipment from Scandinavia. One part of the equipment looks very much like the vulva staff with the birdcage on top. Due to most spinning equipment being made out of wood, there are a few finds of these naturally because they cease to exist after a certain amount of years in the soil and so on. 
So it would make sense that highly regarded a highly regarded vulva would make these stuffs in iron, and therefore we have found them. Mm. These are theories, of course, but they are very interesting how they can uh, interact with each other. So lastly, I would like to mention the runic carving found on a weaving knife in Lödöse, Sweden, just because it is connected to today's theme. So since everyone back in the day was more or less always carrying a knife, because it was the easiest way to send a message to people, Someone has carved the message, think of me, I think of you, love you me, I love you. It was probably the owner of this weaving knife that was on the receiving end of this message. And I think that's just a cute glimpse into history, because during these times, uh, early medieval times, uh, late Iron Age in Scandinavia, uh, the tools have a very important meaning to people. And whenever there's a runic inscriptions, um, who's, who the tool belongs to, it talks about, it, it talks from a point of view where the tool is saying, I belong to this person, I belong to this person, and so on. Um, so that someone has taken the time to carve this message on a weaving knife which someone probably used every day that's adorable it's very cute my boyfriend would probably pay someone to carve it for him and then give it to me that is the kind of romance that i want in my life <laughs> for sure charlotte has met my boyfriend he would not he would not do that wouldn't he carve in a weaving knife for you he wouldn't even think <laughs> oh he wouldn't even think to say it so well well i am lucky i my fiance uh do a lot of rune work, so I'm very lucky in that regard. <laughs> he could definitely do that for you. Then. Yeah, it, the the funny thing is, um, actually, he made a illustration of a runic uh, scripture or carving, of course, not scripture, but a runic carving that is from my home. Ah, that's cute. And we have uh, thousands upon thousands of carvings in Sweden, but he had uploaded this, and this was before we started being together that was from my home town so that was actually a, a like an icebreaker kind of wow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you met you met online oh yes 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 we're not from the same country oh where's he from oh he's from estonia actually so he's not from sweden so we're trying mm. to learn each other's languages right now which is very hard <laughs> I can't imagine either Estonian or Swedish are easy. No. No, it's it's quite funny. We we laugh about it quite um, a lot that we actually, because we speak English to each other and it's so funny meeting your soulmate and you can't even speak to each other in your native language to each other. It's very funny that we use this third option in our lives. <laughs> but it's good that you have that option. Yeah, absolutely. I love English. Just I'm just on the record. I love English. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, this would be very difficult. <laughs> if he annoys you, do you say bad words in Swedish at him? Oh, I wish I have learned. He has been smart with me. He learned the bad words early on. Oh yes. Oh yes. He is. Oh, you can't even do that. <laughs> that's what I. That's what I would do. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, it's a smart study, but he he made sure to learn the bad words at first. <laughs> Everyone always learns the bad words first. <laughs> oh yes, 
it's very useful. But yeah, it's it's going good so far, I would say. I mean, I can a couple of bad words in his language as well. <laughs> so he's not getting away with anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to. But it's also fascinating that we met uh, through this, um, so to say, like dead language. It's not really dead because people still understand it and so, but like we met through runes and rune stones and runic scriptures. That's very interesting. I find that so romantic. <laughs> it's like the cutest story I've ever heard. It's very, oh. very sweet. It's <laughs> so lovely. And we have a few other examples of weaving just to very, very quickly mention. Uh, so we have Saul, it could be. Uh, she's a sun goddess in Baltic mythology. One of the symbols of her presence is a wheel, and she is said to spin sunbeams. Mama Oklo is an Incan goddess, and she apparently first taught women the art of spinning thread. There's also a connection in folklore between magic and weaving, and that's something that's sort of been retained always, like the story of Rumpelstiltskin, where a woman has to attempt to spin gold from straw. And we've also got the story of the emperor's new clothes, although that's more about a good con job than um, than about weaving. <laughs> Atu, or Utu, was a Sumerian weaving goddess. We have Ixchel, who was a Mayan goddess, and she invented weaving. Furilo was a goddess from the Philippines associated with weaving, and I actually I found out about her doing research for this podcast. I've learned about so many goddesses from different mythologies, and it, it makes me want to learn and cover so many. So, yeah, it's it's, it's so fascinating. There, I've always got it. This these mythological like women that you've never heard of. And then we have the, in English it's governing goddesses, but Ellen, can you try and help us with pronouncing these, please? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so <clears throat> Lithuanian is a bit rusty. <laughs> no, but uh, I guess it is Devies Valditoyos. I guess. Sorry, any <laughs> Lithuanians listening, not understanding what I'm better saying. better job than, than we could do. They were goddesses who made garments from human lives, and there were seven sisters. Again, we need your help with their names if you can. Okay, absolutely. Um, let's see. Verpiankioi. She spanned the threads of life. Then we have Metang. Kyoyi, who threw rims of life. Uh, either is Audeja or Audeja, who was the weaver. Gadintoya, who broke the thread. Sergetoya, who scolded. Is it Gadintoya? We think. Yeah, I think so. Okay, uh, Gadintoya and. She instigated war between people. Nukirpeya, who cut the cloth of life. And now let's see. Oh, this will. Uh, Ish. Ishkalbeya, who was the laundress. And they have similarities with the Greek fates and the Norse norns. 
well done with that Ellen I looking at this I was just I know thank you so much <laughs> well I hope it's great I know the the thing over the s is a sh so that far, okay as far as that goes you know I hope <laughs> in Latvian mythology Lema and her sisters Kata and Dekla were a trinity of fate deities similar to the Norse Norns or the Greek Morai. Lema makes her final decision on an individual's fate and is consider- considerably more popular. While all three of them had similar functions, Lema is the goddess of luck and is more related with mothers and childbirth. Dekla is in charge of children and Carter holds power over the adult's life. I read as well that Carter was the spinner of thread of life, so I'm really envisioning them being almost a direct equivalent. And so before we say goodbye, Ellen, we've asked all of our guests so far, so we want to ask you, which of the Olympians do you most identify with, if there is one? Oh, well, if I now we come back to something we mentioned earlier about there always being these beautiful maidens everywhere in (laughs) mythology, right? Yes. Uh, I would actually want to say that I would relate most to Hephaestus because uh, the story of, and this is the Smith. Yeah. I don't know. Have you covered him? Yes. 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 The the whole thing that he got uh, thrown out because he was kind of not appealing enough or so. Yeah. And uh, then he, he gets let back. As far as I understood it, he gets let back because he is a very good craftsman and he is very skilled. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is something about that that I really like uh, where you can be however beautiful you want but if you have a craft if you are because I, this is also something many people don't know I am actually um, a trained goldsmith and oh, wow. I am have worked as a, I have worked as a uh, welder for many many years Wow. Uh, Building big constructions and big uh, air filters and liquid filters and so on for industries. And uh, I therefore also very much uh, see myself in these uh, smithing type of deities around mythologies because they, they, yeah, I can relate to their craftsmanship, basically. And I also like the whole note to be worth something not because of how you look but because of the skill set you have there's something appealing about that to me I like that answer that's a good answer do you think that Hephaestus is considered god of craft and blacksmith and Athena is considered goddess of craft and weaving because weaving is considered feminine and blacksmith is considered masculine probably Probably, yes. I would, um, that is because uh, even uh, now in the, the the age we live in, it was, uh, I was the only female welder at my job. Yeah. And uh, it is uh, very unusual uh, to have um, blacksmith women even today. So, yeah, I would say that it is, uh, you know, this um, gender stereotypical thing around it, of course. Yeah. Okay. 
Mm. And also because uh, because of uh, what we mentioned earlier as well, uh, because of the um, physical uh, strengths. Yeah, we have we have different strengths, and I mean I wouldn't be able to lift those uh, air and liquid filters without a big hook from the ceiling in a big chain. So yeah. Today we have it much easier, <laughs> I would say, with the, the smithing and the welding and the goldsmithing and everything. But yeah, back then they would have had to physically hump all this stuff around, wouldn't they? Oh, yes. Without any protections. Um, oof, I, I can't even. <laughs> I have very, very great respect for the crafters of past ages. Mm. It definitely makes sense then. I think it's time we asked a question as well. And uh, Ellen, well, we should all answer this. Have you, I don't know in Sweden, if you've got the game Shag, Marry, Kill? Oh, yes. But it, it sounds very, <laughs> I, to me, it sounds more vulgar in Swedish. So I like this version a lot more. <laughs> okay. How do you, how do you pronounce it? Oh, my Sweden? God. No, no, no. I can't say that on air. Oh, no. <laughs> So, you know the premise of the game. I'm curious. Shag, now. marry, kill. You have to shag one of them, marry mm-hmm. one of them, and kill one of them. Uh, and the three Olympian brothers, we're going to go with Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. Oh, wow. The most likable guys in the bunch, really. Mm. So, well. The big three. I will. I would. Um, <laughs> hmm, I would probably shag. Poseidon. Okay. And uh, I, I, I will just say that because I wouldn't want to shag any of the <laughs> others. <laughs> and uh, then I would, I would marry Hades because being a queen of the underworld and be, it kind of gives that immortality kind of vibe. I kind of like that. Okay. Even though it's kind of, I mean, it, it is probably as dark as Scandinavia is during the winter anyways. So I'm used to it. <laughs> so, and uh, then I would definitely kill Zeus because, wow, <laughs> he is, uh, he has done a lot of stuff that he shouldn't be doing, hasn't he? <laughs> he has. So that's my definite answer, okay. I think. Lauren, do you have an answer? Well, I was going to say the same, um, but I think I might change my answer. I, I would change, I yeah. Would, I'm going to change my answer to be different. So I am going to kill Zeus because he's terrible <laughs> and horrible as a person. So I'm going to have to... I'm going to sleep with Hades. I'm going to try and bring a bit of warmth to the underworld <laughs> for him. <laughs> bring a bit of heat down there. And because I love scuba diving and fish and sea creatures, I would marry Poseidon. Because if there was a man who sent a dolphin to win me over romantically, I think I'd be a sucker for it. So (laughs) I'm going to do it that way. And actually, I'm going to discuss this in the episode with Poseidon. But I do think that him and Amphitrite seem to have a happy open marriage. So maybe I could get down with that. And at least it's not hostile and jealous like Zeus but I would never sleep with Zeus a because he he transforms into things that are never going to give any sexual pleasure to anybody um like a goose and like an ant (laughs) because there is 
No, there is no way. There is no way. If you are going to transform into these things, the woman is getting nothing. And also, I would be terrified of Hera and what she would do to me. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> good point. I think, I think it has to be that way around. Yeah, I think for me, okay, I can't decide between Zeus and Poseidon. I don't know which one of them I, I dislike the most. I, um, okay, so... Mm, I mean, it's really not that difficult. I don't know why I'm going so deep into this. I would kill Zeus because I'm scared of Hera. Shag Poseidon because then I can pretend to be a mermaid for like a day. And I would marry Hades because Hades seems to be the one who's probably the most faithful out of the three of them. Yeah. Yeah. Very good answers. Yeah, I would say so. (laughs) And Poseidon is rapey. Oh, yeah. Zeus is just more rapey. Yeah, I mean, I, out of Zeus and Poseidon, there isn't really a more preferable one. I'm going to go with the, the sea creatures. Good. With the dolphins. <laughs> so, Or horses. Yeah. Or horses. Maybe Poseidon likes horses. Maybe he's hung <laughs> like a horse. You know. I can't believe you just said May- that. Oh, I know. I, I know. Oh, I, Lord, and my dad Lord. listens to this. Sorry, oh. Dad. <laughs> And actually, my boyfriend listens to this too. It's fine. Oh, well. <laughs> it's fine. I I said it, but other people will be thinking it. Charlotte, I'm sure you were thinking it. I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. I do not admit or deny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I will just pretend that I don't understand that saying. <laughs> I don't understand English. What? <laughs> what? That's That's the best way, I think. thanks for hanging out with us today follow us on instagram at demythifying the podcast for more olympus-based content if you're liking what we're doing please rate and subscribe and you can also find and follow ellen on instagram at moose lady underscore so that's m-o-o-s-e-l-a-d-y underscore i've been charlotte she's been lauren we've been joined by ellen and together we've been demythifying <laughs>